have you ever felt lost? You know, that sickening, helpless feeling that happens when you completely lose your bearings, when you've lost all sense of direction. I'm horrible with directions and I get lost frequently. And there's no more of a sickening, disgusting feeling than being disoriented. You know, as if you're in the middle of the sea on a cloudy, starless night with no sense of north, just floating aimlessly. Being lost, it's a paralyzing feeling. Are you struggling moving forward? Do you feel like that no matter how hard you might try to break free from that sin or to break free from past hurt or resentment, that, that, that you feel so stuck, so mired that moving forward is impossible? <laughs> might you be able to echo what Paul said in Romans 7 verse 15, for what I am doing, I don't even understand. For what I will to do, I, I don't practice, and what I hate, that I end up doing. Have you ever had the sense that your life was just kind of spinning in circles? Like a hiker lost in the woods, do you ever have that constant sinking feeling that you're doing nothing more than just constantly retracing your own footsteps? You know, even when you feel like your life might have turned a corner, it's not too long before you turn another corner and then another, only to find yourself right back where you started. Has this rut left you feeling hopeless? Or, or for that matter, constantly frustrated? That no matter how hard you try to do better, to change the status quo, your circumstances, they just always remain the same. You know, it's an amazing law of our universe. But when left to itself, everything is trapped in a circuit. The earth, earth rotates around the sun, the moon around the earth. The earth spins on its axis, the wind. Wind currents move around the globe only to return to their original point of origin. Water falls from the sky, flows into the sea, only to be evaporated again to where it began. Everything in this universe demonstrates a form of motion, but with no lasting mobility. Ever heard of the circle of life? Like we even prep our kids for this depressing reality. Here are the lyrics to the theme song of The Lion King. From the day we arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun, there's more to see than can ever be see, seen, more to do than can ever be done. There's far too much to take in here, more to find than could ever be found, but the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round. It's the circle of life, and it moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the unwinding path in the circle, the circle of life. You know, the truth is that no human being left up to their own biological faculties will ever be able to escape this cruel, circular destiny. I know it's Christmas time, you might have come for something encouraging, but humanity, just being real, humanity is just one cog 
on the grand wheel. Randy Galstel, a neuroscientist at Rutgers University, made a really interesting discovery. Did you know that most dead hikers end up being found within 100 meters of where they were originally lost? Scientists believe that the reason this is the case is that if left to its own devices, the human brain simply does not have the cognitive ability to navigate a person in a straight line. As a matter of fact, researchers have recently discovered that when the brain attempts to produce on its own something straight, it will in turn naturally yield something circular. To illustrate this bizarre phenomenon, researchers ran an experiment where they took 15 people, they blindfolded them, and told them to walk in a straight line. The result, though every single one of these people swore that they had indeed achieved the result, that they had walked in a straight line, every one of them instead walked in a small but perfect circle with a diameter of less than 66 feet. That's no bigger than a basketball court. You think you're walking straight, but in reality, you're just walking in circles. Now, contrary to urban legend, this phenomenon that most hikers are familiar with doesn't occur because a person is left or right dominated. It doesn't happen because one of your legs is shorter or longer or stronger than the other. Research has instead proven that the fundamental cause for this phenomenon resides in the brain itself. Jan Suman, a psychologist at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemical Cybernetics, suggests that what ends up happening is that little mistakes in the brain add up until the sense of what's straight turns into something round. Discussing her findings in current biology, she says that something seemingly very simple as walking in a straight line actually involves complicated interplay between several senses, our motor actions, and cognition. Even when people feel they are walking in the correct direction, they can still be very wrong. She concludes that when it comes to navigation, we cannot always trust our senses. Now, why is this the case? Why is it that our biological propensity to walk in a circle and not in a straight line? Is life, therefore, designed to be this circular rut, impossible to escape, we all experience? That life is supposed to be a source of constant vexation? Is the meaning, purpose, and satisfaction we all long for, what you long for, simply an unattainable ruse? And if this is really the case, if this is how nature designed it to be, then why are we frustrated by it? Why are we frustrated by what's only natural? This morning's text, I hope, will answer these questions. Now let's establish first, as we're doing with Paul's missionary journeys, the motion of the text. As we concluded in the first couple verses of chapter 14, in the face of a violent attempt on the lives of Paul and Barnabas, they leave Iconium and they travel 20 miles south to the city of Lystra, which is located in a region of Galatia known as Lyconia. 
Verse 8, chapter 14 is where we'll begin. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. But Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And the man leaped and walked. Now, unlike Paul's previous stops, he doesn't begin in a synagogue, which indicates that more than likely there weren't enough Jewish men living in Lystra to justify the building of a synagogue. A synagogue would only be built if there were 10 Jewish men living in that city or more. So there's not much of a Jewish population in Lystra, which would explain why Paul begins his evangelical ministry in the outdoor common areas. This word, speaking, it's an important word. It's an interesting word, for it indicates that Paul wasn't preaching in the common area, but was rather discussing Jesus with anyone who might be open to dialogue. I'd, I'd call this conversational evangelism. It's not as though Paul, here in Lystra, in the common outdoor area, found a high place that he could climb up upon, and then, thus saith the Lord, he begins to declare to a bunch of total strangers about Jesus. No, the idea is that he goes into Lystra, he goes into the common areas, and he just grabs a cup of coffee and starts having conversations with people. Conversational evangelism. And as this is taking place, which anyone can do, right? Anyone can have a conversation about Jesus. As this is taking place, Luke tells us that there's a certain man who, it would appear, is not part of Paul's conversation, not part of the dialogue, but is kind of off to the side, eavesdropping. Luke, our author, who's a doctor, he gives us three descriptions of this certain man. He tells us first his condition. He was sitting, why? Because he was without strength in his feet. So that's his condition. Then the doctor gives us kind of a diagnosis. He says that he's sitting because he was without strength in his feet because, well, he was a cripple from his mother's womb, which means that whatever uh, had inflicted this paralysis, this lameness, had been a birth defect. And then he gives us the result of his condition that he had never walked, ever walked. Wow. Now, you should note that in much the same way as Peter had in Acts 3, it's important that this man's lameness, his condition, his paralysis be the result of a birth defect and not the result of a disease that he had contracted, a disease maybe of his own decisions, or even that it was the result of an accident. He was born with the ailment, and because this was the dynamic, it was only possible for a healing to occur as a miraculous work of God, that this was something that was part of who he was that God was going to correct. Now, the scene is interesting. For as Paul is speaking, we're told that he observed something. He observed that this man, this certain man, this lame man, had faith to be healed. Now, please understand, the man is listening to Paul do what? He's sharing the gospel. No doubt, 
the example we're given in Iconium and in Antioch of what kind of the message, the grace of God, salvation, forgiveness of sins, restoration, life. These things start uh, to impact his heart. Faith is being stirred as he's listening to what Paul is sharing. Are we told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God? It's true with this man. Now, from the context, it's obvious that his faith was based in the belief, the text tells us, that he could be healed. So Paul sees him, sees that he has faith, sees that he has faith to be healed. Now, sadly, there are some that use verses like this to justify the notion that sickness or even the absence of healing is the result, the direct result, of a person's lack of faith. That if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith to be well. Well, then we all somewhat lack faith because we're all gonna die, right? I mean, it seems circular, it's, it's unreasonable. It's not true. You see, this idea of, of, of healing based upon faith in and of itself, it's not only a perversion of texts like this one, but the belief isn't consistent with scripture. Like how much faith do you think Lazarus had to be raised from the dead? None, he's dead, right? Like it's not as though Jesus healed him because of his faith. He's dead as a doornail. Jesus healed him for a different purpose. Now you should note that in the Greek, this word healed should be better translated as save. Let me give you another example of this word being used in Scripture. Since it's Christmas time, we'll pull it right from the Christmas story. Matthew 1, verse 21, we're told, And Mary will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, same word, his people from their sins. Understand, the man's faith centered upon the saving of his soul, not the healing of his legs. The message that he was hearing stirred faith that he could be saved, that his sins could be forgiven, that he could be justified before God. Forget about these legs. My soul can be with God forever, for eternity. This is what Paul is watching in this moment, which kind of leads me to another question because this is weird, right? Like what's Paul seeing? Like he's having a conversation he sees this lame man kind of sitting there looking intently. Like what was it that brought or sparked Paul's attention? I think there are two things at work. You know, it's been said the face is the organ of emotion. It's been said that the face is a dynamic canvas, one on which emotions are drawn vividly, then suddenly erased only to be redrawn and a new expression an instant later. At c316.tv, this morning's text, I included a link at the bottom of an audio file from a Radio Lab podcast I listened to recently that discussed in depth the face and how the face, even subconsciously, can give clues as to a person's real emotion. It's how we go about doing interrogations and profiling. As a matter of fact, this older fella wrote an algorithm that most airports today are using to scan faces to try to actually figure out what's going on within the person because you can't hide it. It kind of reminds me of, of the television show that got canceled, but I loved it, Lie to Me, you know, where you could see a face, Lightman could tell whether or not you were lying by just kind of judging what was happening on your face. You know, I think that there's an aspect 
where this is happening in this instance. As a pastor, I can tell you up front, you can tell what's happening in a person's heart from the teaching of God's word from standing here looking at you. As the word is going forth, I can watch your face. And as a result, I can tell if you're engaged, if you've checked out, if you think I'm a moron, if you're expecting lightning to strike. Like I can tell just by standing here proclaiming the word, what the word's doing in the heart of the person by just watching you, which should be scary. So I think there's an aspect that in this particular instance, Paul saw, physically saw, a stirring in this man, stirring of faith, based upon a physical reception of God's word. But then you can't also detach a second component, probably a more significant component, and that is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, Paul the gifts that he lists leaves little doubt that his actions here upon this stirring, that he was totally prompted and directed by the Holy Spirit. A word of knowledge, no doubt gave him an intuition. A gift of faith provided him the boldness to say with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. I mean, talk about guts, right? I mean, it either happens or it doesn't. And whatever the result, is gonna come right back on you. So there's a gift of faith. The gift of healings was present to yield a miracle as the man leaped up and walked. It was always important to remember that as in other cases, these miracles of physical healing were allowed by God for the specific purpose of validating a greater miracle. The miracle that had taken place already in the man's heart. His faith in Jesus, as demonstrated by his faith in God's word, had produced the greatest miracle of all, salvation of his sins. Beyond this, the public nature of the miracle, it served to validate the power of God's word. The power of God's word being proclaimed through Paul. It had power, power to to save sins and power to heal legs. You know, it reminds me of what Jesus said to a group of doubting Pharisees faced with a similar miracle in Matthew 9, verse 6. Jesus looked at him and he said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic who had been lowered down through the roof. He says, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately the man was healed. Very similar. Verse 11, so when the people saw what Paul had done, They raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, which probably indicates that Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's happening as it's developing. But they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And so as they're declaring this, Paul and Barnabas are looking at each other, not sure what's going on. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought an ox and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And it's probably at this point that Paul and Barnabas get an idea what's taking place. Now understand their reaction that Paul and Barnabas had to be gods. Barnabas, Zeus, probably because he was the older of the two, probably a larger man than Paul, who we know historically was pretty small. 
They conclude Paul's Hermes because he talked a lot. He was the chief speaker. Their belief that these two men were gods was based on a false conclusion that they had reached by the miracle that had just been performed. Look at it again. The whole context for their reaction is that now when the people saw what Paul had done, had Paul healed the man? No. Paul hadn't healed the man at all. Now, last Sunday, we noted that while in Antioch, Jesus had granted signs and wonders be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas, and in the course of examining that idea of signs and wonders, we noted that a sign was nothing more than an act designed to stir wonder within the audience. And with this in mind, understand this reaction, Paul and Barnabas must be gods, was actually the intended purpose behind the miracle itself. Their reaction is not abnormal. It's falsely based, but it's the right conclusion. This is not a work of man. This man has been lame from birth. This doesn't happen every day. God must be at work. And then they conclude that Paul and Barnabas are gods. You know, the act, what they had seen with their own eyes, it was an act of God. But while they falsely attributed the divine nature of the miracle to Paul and Barnabas, thinking they were gods, it's now up to Paul and Barnabas to use the opportunity to shift the glory from themselves onto the God of the miracle, that being Jesus. Now, before we get to verse 14, I want to kind of give you a, a small historical detail that might explain another reason why these people in Lystra had the reaction that they did. There is a legend that years before this, Zeus and Hermes had visited this land as mortals. This was a common tell among the people. But as the story goes, they come as normal men, shielding their divinity, and they're treated with contempt. As a matter of fact, those in Lystra gave them no hospitality except for one old couple. And in their anger, as the legend goes, Zeus and Hermes ended up wiping out the whole population except for the old couple. So why are they so quick to sacrifice an oxen to declare them to be gods? Well, as the legend goes, Zeus and Hermes had come before. They had not been so kind and they had been wiped out. Now concluding Zeus and Hermes are back again. It's like shame on me once, but I'm not making the same mistake twice. Go get the, the high priest of Zeus. We need to deal with this before we get struck dead. But all this is happening. The apostles, Barnabas and Paul, they heard this. And they tore their clothes. They ran in among the multitudes. They're crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, this living God did not leave himself without witness and that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes 
from sacrificing to them. Now, as the crowd here is preparing to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, believing that they're Zeus and Hermes, we're told they run into the multitude. They're tearing their clothes while they're doing this. Now, this act of tearing one's clothes was a common thing within Jewish culture, especially in the face of blasphemy. However, since the crowd is not necessarily Jewish but Greek, it may be that in addition to declaring what they're doing to be blasphemous, they're trying to demonstrate their own humanity, their own mortality. Kind of like, look, we're flesh, we're blood, we're the same as you. Now, though the whole scene is unplanned, right? How did things start? They get to Lystra, they go into the common area, they're just having conversations with people. A miracle takes place, the whole crowd gathers. It's sporadic, it's unplanned, but it is an opportunity. Paul now has been given a platform. He's been given the people's clear and undivided attention. They think he's Hermes. And so what does he do? He uses the opportunity to preach. And note, this second sermon, which is this, this is the second sermon we find of the Apostle Paul, it's much, much different than the first. First, Paul begins his sermon by deflecting attention off he and Barnabas, which is important. They're thinking that the miracle happened because they're gods. The first, the first approach is to diffuse that. We're not gods. He says, men, we're, why are you doing these things? We're just men. We have the same nature as you. And then he declares that they should turn from these useless things to the living God. Now, let's begin by defining these useless things. Let's focus on things for a moment. In context to the greater passage, it would appear the things Paul is referencing was, well, they're mythological gods. They think that Barnabas is Zeus and he's Hermes, so he's addressing their faith in their own mythology, these Greek gods. Paul then boldly, and you could say maybe brashly, refers to these gods and their act of sacrificing to these gods as being useless, doesn't he? These useless things, these useless gods, which in the Greek is meteos, meaning something that's devoid of force. <laughs> Why was it that these Greek mythological gods were devoid of force? It's an important question we should ask. You know, it's interesting, but the Greeks had developed a whole series of mythological deities made really in the image and likeness of man, and Rome simply adopted them. These glorified men and women, their gods, were either the ultimate manifestation of various human characteristics, or they were people with superhuman strength to control the natural world. I'm not going to go through them for you. Listed in the sermon notes as all the Greek gods and kind of how this plays itself out. You can look at it on your own. But when it was all said and done, Greek mythology was nothing more than man's worship or man's exaltation of himself. Gods in the image and likeness of the men making the gods. In some ways, it's the ultimate manifestation of the original lie. Let me read you a few verses that occur at the beginning of Genesis 3. 
We're told, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? But the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened. And what? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, the original lie, the original appeal was that you don't need God. That you can be your own God. And Greek mythology had taken this idea to an extreme. Because what were these gods? Nothing more than humans, glorified humans. The worship of humanity. Romans 1, verses 22 through 25, Paul would say that professing to be wise, they became fools, and then note, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, referencing Genesis 3, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. When Paul tells them to turn from these useless things, It's as though he's saying, (laughs) he runs into the midst of them, tearing his clothes, showing his own mortality to say, your gods, these gods, Zeus and Hermes, and pointing to the temple there in Lystra, they're useless. They're powerless because they're nothing more than an image of you. I mean, how could you possibly think that a God made by man to look like man, could have any power to save man. As we established in our intro, what's the best man can do? Walk in a circle. You know, if the circle is so fundamental to human biology and the natural world, I wonder why is it that we as human beings resist this circular reality? I mean, why is it that we hate the sense that we're running in circles when the rest of nature seems at ease with it? Like the wind never complains that it runs in a circuit, nor the water. It's never as though the earth is like, I'm sick of this circle. I'm done doing this, you stupid sun. No, everything within nature embraces this circular reality, but humanity. Why is it that humanity doesn't like feeling as though we're in a circular rut? The answer is that as human beings, we were created to transcend the circle of life. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that unlike the rest of creation, God did what? He put eternity in our hearts. You see, whereas the rest of the natural world is but temporal, man is unique because he has been created eternal. I don't like running in circles because I want want something more than this, something beyond this, something that transcends this. Understand, the biological tendency to walk in circles is not the way that you were created to be. I believe that. I believe that aside from separating you from God, It was sin that warped 
this part of your brain that warped your step, that sin gives you the propensity to walk in circles, that sin places you in a rut. Isaiah 47 verse 10, the prophet says, your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, look at it, I am, which was a name for God, and there is no one else besides me. You know, isn't it true that most people, like, doesn't this appeal to you to a degree that people want life to be linear versus circular? We want our lives to have a point. You get it? And not run round and round and round. That we want life to have a different end than our beginning, a resolve, a destiny. For without these things, we understand that life inherently can never have purpose and will only be meaningless. You see, the question boils down to how do we achieve gaining purpose, gaining a point, moving in a linear fashion when I'm powerless as a human being to do this in and of myself? In the experiment I referenced earlier, in addition to running this exercise where they blindfolded 15 people, told them to walk in a straight line, they actually took three people, took them into the desert, and asked them to walk in a straight line. Now, they weren't able to actually go as far with the experiment as they wanted to because it was interrupted by a sandstorm. But before that happened, two of the three, they sent off during the day. And interestingly enough, they didn't walk in circles, they did veer off course, but they didn't walk in a circular pattern. But the third, the third person who made the attempt at night, he was able to walk in a straight line, and these people were not blindfolded. He was able to walk in a straight line until something interesting took place. Jan Suman, who I referenced earlier, she observed in the experiment that this man walking at night was able to do so until the moon disappeared behind the clouds. All of a sudden, when this happened, the man turned 90 degrees, only to later turn another 90 degrees. And they're tracking these people using GPS. You see, without realizing it, when the moon disappeared, the man lost his bearings, and he did what? With no bearing, he walked in a circle. Jan Suzman she concludes this, and note, in a desert, you can really walk in a straight line if you have the sun to guide you. If people do not have an absolute reference, it's impossible to walk in a straight line. So, getting back to our original point, how can you escape the rut? How is it that you can break the cycle of sin or move beyond your past mistakes or hurts? How can you find meaning and purpose in life? What's the key to moving forward? It's to resist the temptation to rely on self, which will only run you in circles, and instead set your eyes on an absolute reference point, the sun. Realize, without Jesus, your life left to yourself as you being God will be nothing more than frustrating, hopeless, and circular. Paul tells them, 
to turn from these useless things. To what? To the living God. Because a person can only face and move one direction at a time. Try it. Try to walk north and south at the same time. You're going to find that very frustrating. Try to go west or east at the same time. You can't do it. You can only move the direction that you face. And because this is a truth of life, a truth of the physical universe, it's also true of the spiritual universe. That it's impossible to turn to the living God if you're not first willing to turn from these useless things. If you feel like you're running in circles with your eyes on yourself, that you, your own God, the master of your own destiny, the dictator of what you do and what you don't, the only way that you can start moving in a linear fashion is to get your eyes off of you and onto something else. Turning from always precedes turning to. And what were they encouraged to turn to? Well, Paul says, the living God. And then he defines who this living God is. He says this God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, this living God did not leave himself without witness and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> Paul's approach here is much different than before, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't go into Jesus. He's not talking about the resurrection. There's no mention of the Old Testament the prophets of old. Like he breaks from the normal pattern of evangelical messages we've encountered thus far in the book of Acts. So why does Paul do this? Why does he feel necessary to do this here in Lystra? Well, don't forget, his audience isn't Jewish at all. It's entirely Gentile. And because his audience possessed a polytheistic multiple gods, pantheon of gods, versus monotheistic worldview, Paul realized that diving directly into the good news of Jesus would have been counterintuitive. It's why instead of starting with Jesus, he has to go back to the beginning by introducing these people to the living God. And what, how does he do this? He presents the living God as the creator and the designer. On a side point, the Apostle Paul had no problems believing a literal creation story. He made it very clear that God did what? God created. And then he gets specific into what God created. Now, why does Paul take this approach? It is likely that a story, think of it, of the Son of God being sent to earth to save mankind from sin as a Greek, sure, I'll, I'll accept that. This cool new guy, Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Greeks would have probably accepted Jesus without fully, without fully understanding what it was or the implications of what it was they were accepting. Oh, God sent an, another God, and this God is going to save man from his sin. You see, they would have accepted Jesus if Paul had started with the story of Jesus, but this is what they would have done. They would have accepted Jesus by adding him to the rest of their gods. This is why Paul has to go back. He has to start with their whole worldview. Instead of a polytheistic pantheon of gods, he strips this down and say, there's a living God who made everything, who designed everything. Now, he never really gets to the opportunity to present Jesus here. He could 
scarcely with his words prohibit them from sacrificing. But understand, Paul's whole framework is an either-or proposition, not a both-and. See, the Greeks and their mindset, they're fine with both-and. I'll accept Jesus and accept everything else. I'll follow Jesus and follow all the other gods I establish. I'll give my life to Jesus, but I'll also share the throne with him. It'll be Jesus and me, the dynamic duo, the tag team when it comes to my life. And yet Paul is clear that there is only one, there's one seat on the throne. There's only room for one occupant. You either follow these worthless things, these useless things, these powerless things, you, or, it's either or, or you turn to the living God. In conclusion, if you feel lost, it stinks to feel lost. And this can go to a, 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 someone that is still just trying to figure out the world, trying to figure out Jesus, trying to figure out this God thing, trying to figure out if there's meaning, if there's purpose, if there's even a hope for it. You might feel lost. I just don't know, man. To the Christian, there are times we feel lost. We feel like all these things that Christ died to liberate us from have their tentacles holding us back from, from really running. We feel stuck and movable. Sometimes we feel lost. If you're lost, if you have that feeling this morning, you have options. You know, you can refuse to admit you're even lost to begin with. And some people employ this particular model, don't they? It's what I'd like to call the, the matrix philosophy, that ignorance is bliss. You know what? I'm just going to forget that I'm lost. I got no idea where north is, where south is, east or west, but you know what? I'm just going to decide that I'm home, that this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm going to reject the entire idea that I'm lost. I'm going to run in a circle. That's cool. And you can do that and never be found and be dead very close to where you started. Or you can embrace being lost. Some people do this, right? It's what I'd like to call the, the Dave Matthews philosophy. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. I'm lost. I know I'm lost. Nothing I can do about it. So I might as well party hard and have a good time being lost. Because I'm going to die. I've accepted that reality. Some people want to be ignorant. Other people just embrace it. You can do that and also end up dead very close to where you began. You can rely on your own sense of navigation. Okay, I know I'm lost, but I don't need anybody's help. I can do this on my own. I can work hard. I can try hard. I can discipline myself. I can have self-control. I can give myself meaning. I can give myself purpose. I can save myself. I don't need anybody's help. And if you do that, you will also walk in circles. Like a hiker lost in the woods with no compass, unable to see the sun, you'll just walk in a circle and also end very close to where you began. <laughs> Some people, 
They don't like the ignorance model or the I'll embrace it and just die here model or even the I'll save myself model. Some people employ the I'll just follow someone else's lead model. I, I will just call it religion. I know I'm lost and I know I can't necessarily get there on my own. So I'm going to find someone that can lead me there. I'm going to set my eyes on that man. And I'm going to follow that man. You know, the problem with that model is that if it's just a man, he's also lost and also running in circles. So now it's just follow the leader to death, which is also depressing. Hey, all these options, you can, you can try. Some of you are in the midst of it. Others of you have been there. Or you can set your eyes off of yourself and onto the unchanging sun. And you can say, I'm sick of being lost. I'm sick of running in circles. I'm sick of this rut. I want to go forward. Paul would say, forgetting those things which are behind, I press onward for the calling of Jesus. Paul recognized that the key to moving forward, the key to our destiny, the key to the meaning in the moment, purpose in our, in our future, is by setting our eyes on Jesus and following him wherever he goes, wherever he leads, knowing what? That not only is Jesus the way, the truth and the life, but that we're also told that he is the author, but I love it, and the finisher of our faith.